0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. I'm your host and narrator, spring Jack, and we're going to get started today after just a few brief disclaimers. First of all, the show might offend you. If you're easily offended, please turn the show off and spare me the negative reviews on the podcast store or the iTunes store, whatever the fuck you call it, uh, because you won't like the show. This is your first and final warning. Second, I use advertisements in the show that I do not own the rights to. They are the creative property of Rockstar Games. That is all.
1: You've accidentally killed a family of four. We all know these things happen. You need to get out of jail to beat the shit out of your old lady for getting you into this mess in the first place. But you need money for bail. That's where we come in, at Jay's Bail Bonds. We're your new friend. We're here in your time of need. But skip town on us, and we'll hunt you down like the vermin you are. You may be in a lot of trouble with the law, but now you're in debt to an angry, unregulated, lunatic who will be happy to take a shit on the constitution to get their money back contact jay's bail bonds today
2: when the grid goes down america will be plunged into decades of darkness are you Ready? Get your complete apocalypse kit at ammunition. Contains foodstuffs and alcohol for three months. A massive array of armaments. Cartons of cigarettes to trade with roadside wanderers. Plus, the apocalypse kit contains birth control, so you don't create any more mouths to feed. Pornography and a wind-up radio so you can hear news reports about the idiots who didn't prepare. It also includes a seed kit. When there's rampant cannibalism going on, what you want to do is take up gardening. Perhaps you can barter for your life with a carrot. You'll learn how to make a tourniquet, cauterize a stump if you have to saw off your arm or leg, making booby traps, bushcraft, and how to determine if your significant other has been replaced by a body double. We all know Y2K was a bust, but trust us, this one is real. We can pretty much guarantee a real apocalypse will happen soon. Order the Ammunition Apocalypse Kit today. It's an investment in the inevitable. You won't regret ammunition. Protect it. And you're
0: right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the second day of Halloween. I'm your host, Spring Jack, and today we're going to be doing Ghost Stories from Around the World from the book Short and Shivery. This first one is from North America and it's called Island of Fear. There was once a young boy, Hattondus, whose parents had died. He lived with his grandparents deep in a great wood. Though they were loving and kind in many ways, they were always stern when they warned him, When you leave our wigwam, do not go west. Now, Hatondas was a good child, and for a long time he would explore only those forest paths that ran north, east, and south. He would never venture into the dark shadow of the woods to the west. But as he grew older, he became curious to know what might be found in the mysterious west. At last, he decided to see what lay in this forbidden place. So one morning... While his grandparents slept, he set out along the brush-choked trail that led west. For a long time, he could only advance very slowly because the underbrush was too thick. Not even deer or other animals had worn paths through the wilderness. After a long, difficult journey, he came upon the banks of a broad, swift-flowing river. "'Is this what my grandfather and grandmother did not want me to see?' he asked himself. "'Surely they have grown foolish in their old age.' He sat down very close to the water's edge to rest and watched the shining river. Suddenly, he heard the bushes crackling behind him. Then somebody called out pleasantly, "'Hi, hi, is this not a beautiful sight?' Turning, Hatonda saw a handsome young warrior, his hand raised in a peaceful gesture. "'Yes,' Hatonda said to the newcomer. "'I have never seen it before.' "'Oh, and then you must come with me to my canoe not far from here,' said the stranger." I will take you to visit one of the islands nearby. We will return in a short time, and you will have seen many sights worth talking about. Finding the young man pleasant company, Hatondas agreed. Together they walked to where the splendid birch bark canoe lay on the sandy beach of a cove. When they stepped into the canoe, the stranger gave a shove with his paddle and sent them into the current. With swift, even strokes, he quickly carried them far from shore. Soon, a short distance ahead, Hatonda saw a small, pretty island with a dense clump of trees at the center. When they arrived on the beach of sparkling sand, they both climbed out, and the stranger drew his canoe up on the shore. Beyond the beach grew masses of tall tall plants with blossoms as yellow as the sun. For a moment, Hatonda drank in their beauty, but when he turned to look for his guide, the young man had vanished, and the canoe was no longer beached where they'd left it. Amazed, Hatonda spotted the canoe far out on the river, halfway to the distant shore. "'Hi, hi,' he shouted. "'Come back! Come back!' But the stranger would not look back. Realizing that he was fucked, Hatonda sat down on a fallen log in the shade of some trees. Suddenly he heard a whisper. "'Boy! Boy!' The sound seemed to come up from the ground at the end of the log, but then he noticed a small white spot. Scraping away the earth, he uncovered his skull. "'Lift me to the sun for a moment,' begged the skull." The whisper came from between the jaws, which never moved. Let me feel its warmth with shaking hands. Hatondas lifted the skull up to the sun. Oh, how good, how I enjoy it! I'm glad you found me. The skull whispered. now, I must warn you that this island is ruled by an ogre who commands powerful medicine. His son, who brings men across from the shore, only seems human. I was once a great medicine man myself. "'I came willingly to this island, thinking I would be strong enough to slay the sorcerer. "'But his magic was stronger than mine, and he killed me. "'He has gone away today, but he will return tomorrow with his son. "'Both of them eat men. "'They will gobble you up the way they did me and many others unless you do as I tell you. "'If you heed me, you may escape and break this island's evil spell forever.' "'Frightened but courageous, the young boy said, "'I will.' Before sunrise tomorrow, run to the beach where you landed and bury yourself in the sand so that only your eye and your ear are uncovered. You must look and listen carefully, then tell me what you have learned. The boy agreed to do this, then he gently sat the skull on a small hill where it could enjoy the sun's warmth. After a sleepless night, Hatondas went down to the shore at first light. He hid just as the skull had instructed him, and soon he heard the sound of singing from across the water. The song grew louder, and the boy in hiding guessed that the singer was approaching the island. Recognizing it as a song of power, Hatonda softly hummed it to himself until he had learned it by heart. Then he heard the crunch of the canoe as it touched the sandy beach. The singing stopped, but now Hatonda heard two voices. One, the voice of the young guide from the day before. The other, much older and rougher. The boy saw two ogres with horrible faces pop eyes, and wide, full mouths of sharp sharp yellow teeth. Where is my meal? roared the taller of the two. I will fetch him, said the other, though he no longer looked like the handsome warrior who had rode Hatondas across to the island. His voice was the same. He vanished into the woods, while the other ogre trampled impatiently up and down the beach, often no more than a pace from where Hatondas lay hidden. Finally, the ogre's son returned and said, I can't find him. At this, the father stamped the ground and ordered his son to go seek another victim. Then, grumbling, the sorcerers stormed through the woods while his son returned to the canoe and hastened back to the mainland. When both were out of sight, Hatondas uncovered himself and returned to tell the skull what he had seen and heard. You have done well. Now listen. First go to the place where you found me. Dig again in that spot and you will find my medicine bundle. Bring it here. The boy did as he was told, and soon uncovered a decayed medicine pouch. This he brought back to where the skull lay in the patch of sunlight. Then the skull whispered to him, Make seven dolls from wood, and make a small bow and arrow from each. for each. Cut the pouch into seven strips, and tie one strip around each doll. Then place them in the top of a tree near the beach. Hide yourself in the sand again at first light and see what happens. The next morning, the ogre's son rode across from the mainland, singing his song of power. When he reached the beach, he set down a bundle from which cries arose. Hatondas guessed that the ogres had stolen a baby. Suddenly, from the tree in which he had put the wooden dolls came cries of, When the ogre looked up to see what made the sound, the tiny bowmen fired their arrows into the monster. From the way he cried out, Hatondas guessed the sliver-like arrows had deadly power. Volley after volley flew from the tree. Soon the creature, bristling full of arrows, fell in a heap on the sand. Hatondas uncovered himself, grabbed the baby, and ran for the trees. When he glanced up at the dolls, he saw that they were now only figures of dried wood. A moment later, he heard the ogre sorcerer hurrying towards the beach. Clutching the infant, Hatondas hastened to the skull in the circle of sunlight. Quickly, the boy told what had happened. "'My magic is now finished,' whispered the skull." You must slay the sorcerer yourself. <laughs> Useless. Jesus. How can I do such a thing? Hatondus asked. At the center of the island is a clearing. Within the clearing is the monster's wigwam. The creature leaves his heart inside so that he does not need to fear dying. Destroy it, and you destroy him. Leaving the baby hidden beneath a bush, Hatondus hurried to find the huge wigwam deep within the woods. He thrust aside the entrance flap and saw against a far wall a large, beating heart. In the middle of the tent was a huge pot of boiling water. Hatondas grabbed the heart just as the ogre came storming in. The creature snarled as he saw his intended victim holding his heart. Bellowing, the ogre grabbed for the boy, but Hatondas threw the heart into the bubbling water. The monster gasped and screeched and then fell over backwards, but his heart boiled away so his very flesh boiled away, leaving only misshapen bones on the floor mats. Hatondus removed all the robes and blankets from the evil wigwam and set fire to it, so that nothing was left but ashes. Then he returned to where he had hidden the baby. The skull whispered, "'When you destroyed the monster and his lodge, you broke the spell on the island. Go, take the child with you and leave me here in the sunshine.'" So Hatondus went back to the beach, took the ogre's canoe, and singing the song of power, returned to his grandparents. They wept tears of joy upon seeing him, because they thought he had been slain by a wild animal or drowned. Then they scolded him, for going where they had told him not to go, but the boy apologized, and gave them the robes and blankets he had taken from the island, so they forgave his disobedience. Because they could not find out who the baby belonged to, he was raised as a brother to Hatondas. H- H- now that the ogre was dead, they were free to follow any path that they chose.
1: In times like these, it's important to remember the good things. Sure, the economy may be a little rough and we may be shuttering schools, hospitals, and libraries to pay union pensions, but San Andreas is still the place where dreams are made. This is where counterculture began and then morphed into a nanny state, a place that preaches environmental stewardship but has a terrible public transit system and the worst air in the world. Experience more of San Andreas, the suburban sprawl, no sense of community, and no building more than 30 years old, where fluffy children's theme park animals are both our heritage and our culture. San Andreas leads the country in removing pristine first growth forests to build generic strip malls and trapped mansions. San Andreas, we won't be broken hypocrites forever. Brought to you by the San Andreas Tourism Board.
0: All right, and this next one is for you, listeners across the pond. Although there's only 15,000 of you, thank you very much for listening. This story is called Three Who Sought Death, and it comes to you from the British Isles, England specifically, and it's loosely based on a story by Joffrey Chaucer. Speaking of Joffreys, I'm going to take an unpopular stance here and uh, say that King Joffrey in Game of Thrones was one of two characters that got things done. The other one being, of course, Roose Bolton. If you don't like that stance, you can DM me on Instagram.com slash DukeLandis. King Joffrey was fucking hilarious. I don't care what anybody says. Argue with me. (laughs) Anyway, three who sought death. There were three reckless fellows in a tavern one day who chanced to see a funeral procession passing by. They sent the tavern boy inside to inquire who had died. The lad returned and told them, it's an old friend of yours, foreign drunk, who was slain by the thief named Death. By heaven, said the first fellow to his companions, who is this Death that everyone is so afraid of him? Let us vow on the spot to go find death and rid the world of him before nightfall. All three shook hands and agreed to seek out death and put an end to his work. When they asked the tavern keeper where death might be found, the man said, Not far from here is a village that has been ravaged by the plague. Men, women, and children, master, and servant have been claimed by this death. I'm certain you'll find him there. So off they went to find the unhappy little village that was spoken of in the tavern. But when they had gone only a little way, the three met a poor old man. They made fun of his long gray beard, his wrinkled skin, and the staff that that he leaned on for support. They barred his path and would not let him pass. "'Please let me go on my way,' the old man begged, "'for death is behind me, and I must outrun him to stay alive.' "'No, you old wretch, we will not let you pass,' the three said, "'until you tell us where we can find death. "'He has slain our friend, and now we mean to put an end to him.' "'Good sir,' said the old man." If you want to find death, look under that oak tree yonder. At this the three fellows let the old man go on his way. They hurried to the tree where they found not death, but a chest filled with gold coins. Down they sat to count their new-found treasure and promptly forgot their vow to seek out death. After a time the first man said, We must be careful with this gold or people will say that we stole it and hang us as thieves. Let us draw straws. Whichever of us draws the shortest will go to town and bring us food. The other two shall keep watch over the gold. Then at night we will each take away with us an equal part of the treasure. When no man can see us and accuse us of thievery, we'll sneak off into the night. This they agreed to, and accordingly drew straws. The shortest straw went to the youngest of the three. So they gave him a handful of gold coins, and off he went into town to collect food. Jesus, that's a lot of trust right there. Those two other guys just fuck off with the chest and (laughs) you're left with three meals and no gold. Meanwhile, the two left guarding the remainder of the treasure decided that as soon as their fellow returned, they'd kill him, eat the food, divide the gold up two ways instead of three. There you go. The youngest, as he walked to town, said to himself, I could buy poison and put it in the food and slay my two companions. Then I would have all the treasure to myself. So he purchased a strong and violent poison "'and put it in the food and drink that he had just bought "'and carried it to these fellows. "'But his companions fell upon him and slew him the minute he returned. "'When they had buried his body, the first wretch said, "'Now let us sit down, eat, and make merry, for we are wealthy men.' "'Then they ate the food their friend had brought "'and quickly died from the poison in it. "'So the three men did indeed find death "'whom they had been seeking underneath the oak tree, "'just as the old man they had met had promised. "'Well, cheese and crackers, that was a good story.' And we'll be right back with another one from the other side of the pond, meaning Old Mexico, after a quick message from these fake sponsors that don't endorse the show.
1: Bored but bossy, desperate for power, and upset nobody will listen to you, keen to patronize? Try a career in human resources. Your job is to fire people or make them feel bad for telling funny jokes. Take the joy and pleasure out of the workplace. Work is called work for a reason. It shouldn't be fun. You'll have more power than management. Make people fill out long questionnaires about their feelings so you can sell the data or blackmail them at a later point get paid to snoop on employee email train for three evenings and you'll be qualified to begin an exciting career as a human resources professional contact ovine human resources academy today
0: all right here's another one from mexico it's called sister death and the healer there was once a woodcutter named jose who fell asleep in the wood and did not wake until after dark when he did, he met the skeletal figure of Manita Muerta, Sister Death, driving her wooden cart in which she gathers the souls of the newly departed. Buenos noches, señora," said the woodcutter respectfully, recognizing the figure who stood before him. "Buenos noches, señor," Death replied. "Will you give me something to eat?" <clears throat> All right, I'm not going to be doing that anymore. The night is long, and I have grown hungry. See, sí, see," sí, said the woodcutter. He gave. "'half of his rice and beans to her. "'I am honored to share this, for I have long admired you. "'In a world that too much belongs to the rich and powerful, "'you play no favorites. "'All the rich or poor will be taken into your cart sooner or later.' "'Now, Death was very pleased to hear him speak so. "'I will give you any gift you wish for as a reward,' she said. "'I have only one wish,' the good-hearted man said, "'that I might keep those who are sick and suffering.' Very well, said Death, I will make you a curandero, a healer. All you must do is lay your hand on sick people's brows, and he or she will be made well again. But you must never use your gift if you see me standing at the head of a sick person's bed. I will be there because God has decided to call the suffering one out of life. No one must keep me from gathering that soul into my cart, not even you. The woodcutter readily agreed to this. With a quick nod of her head, death sealed her bargain. Then she drove her cart away to the east, where the morning sun had begun to lighten the sky behind the mountains. As Jose returned home, he wondered if he had 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 a waking dream. Surely, he told himself, he had met Manita Muerta, in fact. Now it chanced that on his way he met old Luis, a friend of his. Luis was limping because his burro had kicked him in the leg. That's a donkey for those of you that don't speak Espanol. "'Let me help you,' Jose offered. "'He started to put his arm around his friend's shoulder, "'but at his touch, Luis cried wonderingly. "'My leg! You have healed my leg! How have you done this?' "'Then Jose told the old man the story of his meeting with death. "'Astounded, Luis insisted on telling everybody they met "'about Jose's great gift. "'Soon young and old were coming to him, "'asking for blessings and begging for his healing touch.' The new Carandero used his powers carefully. Quite by accident, since his only goal was to help the sick and pain-ridden, the healer himself grew wealthy. Still, he remained a generous person and gave away as much of the gold as he kept. Then one day, José fell in love with Dolores, the daughter of old Luis. They longed to spend every moment in each other's company. Often, Dolores would accompany him on his healing trips. There, she would comfort an anxious husband or wife or take a tearful child onto her lap while Jose prayed over the ailing person and worked his wonderful cures through the gentle touch of his hands. On the day before they were to be married, Dolores fell ill. When he was summoned to her bedside by her grieving father, Jose was distressed to see that death was leaning upon one of the posts of the bed. For the first and only time, Jose disobeyed Manita Muerte. He gently laid his hands upon Dolores' fevered brow and healed the young woman. At that instant, Death vanished from the room. But as the Corandero walked home late that night, Death's cart appeared on the road in front of him. When he dared look into the face of Death, he saw only a shadow underneath her cowl. He began to tremble. Suddenly, the moon and stars vanished. There was a moment of blinding darkness, and then he found himself in a cave filled with uncounted numbers of flickering candles. Death sat in her cart beside him. Slowly, she raised a bony finger and pointed to a long and short candle side by side on a nearby flat stone. The short one had almost guttered out. I warned you never to cure someone if I stood at the head of the bed, but you disobeyed me, Death said angrily. Now you must suffer the consequence. Once you were the tall candle with a long life ahead, and the nearly extinguished one was your beloved. Your disobedience has reversed the two. Now your life candle is the short one. Have pity, said the man, dropping to his knees and pleading with death. I did what I did because I could not live without Dolores, nor she without me. Then I will grant you one last mercy, said Manita Muerte. So saying, Sister Death leaned over and snuffed out both candles together. In an instant, the dead man's soul was in the cart as it creaked and crept along the dusty road that leads to a distant, shadowed country. Beside him, in the silenced road, the soul of his beloved, as death carried them both out of the land of the living. Well, heavens to Murgatroyd, that was a good one as well, too, I think. Be back with another one from Europe after a quick break.
3: Wake up in the morning, drop a big old log out here. You ain't got time for nothing fruity like a joke. Marry a fat bitch and die working like a dog. Boys in the heartland, bankers in the city. We love cars, guns, and big old plastic titties. Let's grab a case with pisswasser and drink for the USA. Woo! Hey neighbors, I'm sorry we're partying real butch. You ought to speak English if you like it here so much. Not Spanish or Chinese or British. They're all fucking Dutch. Fuck the Dutch. I said yeah, we're gonna keep. Them illegals out. Guns and piss Yeah, that's what a party's all about. Getting real drunk, puking face down. And a bobbing about every kid in town. Drinking piss washer, fighting, getting real shit faced night Yeah, I'm a patriotic American. That's my national right Pisswasser German fighting lager for export only
0: Alright, this next one is called The Mouse Tower and it's from Germany In the middle of the Rhine River Near the city of Bingen There has stood for hundreds of years A fortified rock topped by a large tower Called the Mausterum Or Mouse Tower Legend has long held that this was the scene Of a terrible punishment sent by God Upon a bishop who betrayed the faithful In his care in the year 970, Germany suffered from a terrible famine. In desperation, people were reduced to eating dogs and cats, and still countless n- numbers died of hunger. At this time, the II was bishop of the region. Every day the starving poor would crowd around his door, begging for bread. It was widely known that he had plentiful supplies of grain set aside from the good harvest the year before. However, the bishop refused to part with the mounds of grain locked away in the bulging storehouses, His only thought was to increase his personal fortune. From the high window of his palace, he would watch poor people fainting from hunger on the streets and storming the bread market where they would take the bread by force. The bishop felt no pity at all for these starving people, but he soon grew weary of their cries day and night as they crowded around his palace walls, begging for a crust of bread, a handful of corn, so on and so forth. At last, the bishop decided to quiet the mob. From his window, he announced to them, Let all you poor and needy gather in my great barn outside the city. There I shall feed you. Oh man, beware of bishops bearing gifts. That's what I always say. So it was that from all directions, from near and far, a desperate army of hungry folk flocked to the bishop's barn. Loudly, they sang the bishop's praises while his soldiers urged them into the barn. When the vast wooden structure could hold no more, the treacherous bishop ordered his soldiers to seal the doors. Then he had his men set fire to the barn and burned the unfortunates, young, old, men, women, children. When the flames were at their highest and their agonized cries were at the loudest, Hato said, Hear, hear how the mice squeak. In faith, tis an excellent bonfire. The country is greatly obliged to me for ridding it of such mice who would only consume our precious corn. The shouts and screams for mercy seemed to hang in the air long after the barn was reduced to nothing more than smoking embers. Afterwards, content with his day's work, the wicked man returned to his palace. There he sat down merrily to his supper and afterwards slept the night like an innocent man. But God soon saw, saw to it that Bishop Hato never slept again. The very next morning the bishop discovered his palace was infested with mice. They scurried down corridors and crawled over his feet while he took his ease or tried to read. They fouled the food in his larder and chewed his books and paper. They bit anybody who tried to drive them away. No effort on his part could free Bishop Hato from their torments. But when he entered his great hall, he discovered that the mice had eaten his portrait out of its frame. The rectangle of splintered wood held only a few tatters of canvas. A short time later, a frightened farm servant reported to him that mice had devoured all the corn in his granaries. Immediately thereafter, a second terrified messenger arrived and reported that a huge tide of mice was scurrying towards the palace. Rushing to his window, the bishop could see the roads and fields dark with the advancing army. The vast horde of mice was chewing remorsefully through the hedge and the wall. As the creatures made straight for the palace, the sound of their shrieking and squeaking chilled him to the heart. Full of terror, Bishop Hato escaped through the rear gate and commanded his men to row him out to his tower in the middle of the Rhine River. There he ordered his servants to bar every entrance. But the mice followed him. They swam across the river, clambered up the rock, and crawled through every crack and crevice of the battlements. Swarming over the tower, they chewed their way in by the thousands, through oaken doors and plank floors and wooden ceilings. And when they had cornered the wicked bishop, they climbed, dropped, and leapt up at him from all sides. As one old poem has it, they wetted their teeth against the stones, and then they picked the bishop's bones. They gnawed the flesh from every limb, for they were sent to punish him. A reading from the Book of Psalms. (laughs) Then, as suddenly as they had appeared, the swarms of mice disappeared. Many people were convinced that the animals were really the souls of those the bishop had so cruelly slain. The masturum remains... A place of fearful fascination, it is rumored that one can still hear the ghostly cries of the wretched bishop and the chittering of hordes of unseen mice on the anniversary of the fatal bonfire. You know what? I want to look up the history of that, and I think you guys might be interested to hear it as well, so I'm going to look that up. Alright, so it seems like everything in that story is at least kind of verified. Not, I don't know about all the mice eating people, but that tower definitely exists and it's definitely a part of German folklore in the region. So, uh wow. How about that? What a good story. I gotta say, I'm enjoying these. I hope you guys are too. Alright, now let's go back to America for this next story. Uh, From the United States, I just said that, the story is called The Devil and Tom Walker. And it's from New England. A few miles from Boston, the sea has cut a deep inlet that winds several miles inland and ends in a thickly wooded swamp. On one side of the water is a dark grove of trees. On the opposite side, the land rises abruptly from the shore into a high ridge, on which grows scattered oaks of immense age and size. Under one such tree, according to the old stories, Captain Kidd the pirate buried a great treasure. The stories add that a devil... Oversaw the hiding of the money and took it under his guardianship and He is all as he always does with buried treasure that has been ill-gotten. Kidd never returned to claim his gold being captured soon after at Boston, sent to England and hanged for piracy. Later in the year seventeen twenty seven a miserly fellow named Tom Walker dwelled near this place. He lived in a forlorn house surrounded by a few straggling trees. One day, Tom took a short cut homeward through the swamp. Like most short shortcuts, it was an ill-chosen route. It was dusk when Tom reached the ruins of an old fort in the middle of the swamp. He paused to rest on the trunk of a fallen hemlock. Absently, he turned up the soil with his walking staff. Suddenly, his staff struck something hard, and he uncovered an ancient skull with a tomahawk buried deep in it. Harumph, said Tom Walker as he gave it a kick. Leave the skull alone, said a gruff voice. Tom looked up and saw a tall man dressed in black seated opposite him on the stump of a tree. He scowled at Tom with a pair of large red eyes. What are you doing on my ground? And pray, who are you, if I may be so bold, said Tom? Oh, I go by various names. In this neighborhood, I am known by the name of the Black Woodsman. If I mistake not, said Tom sturdily, you are also commonly called Old Scratch. At your service, replied the devil with a nod. And so the two began a conversation as Tom returned homeward. The dark man told him of huge sums of gold and silver buried by Captain Kidd the Pirate under the oak tree on the high ridge. This treasure was protected by his power so that only someone who gained his favor could find it. This he offered to Tom, on certain conditions. The conditions must have been very hard because Tom asked for time to think about them, and he was not a man to worry about trifles when money was in the view. When they reached the edge of the swamp, Tom said, What proof have I that all of this that you're telling me is true? Here's my signature, said old Scratch, pressing his finger against Tom's forehead. Then he turned off into the swamp and seemed to go down, down, down into the earth until he totally disappeared. When Tom reached home, he found a black fingerprint which nothing could erase on his forehead. This made him think even more carefully about the terms he had been offered. Soon enough, however, though, he... Let greed win him over, and uh, one evening, Tom set out for the abandoned fort. Soon, he met the black woodsman, with his axe on his shoulder, strolling through the swamp, humming a tune. By degrees, Tom brought up the subject of business, and they began to haggle about the terms on which Tom was to have the pirate's treasure. "'You shall become a money lender, the devil proposed. "'You shall open a shop in Boston. You shall lend money to the most desperate, at ruinous rates.' Extort bonds, foreclose mortgages, and drive merchants to bankruptcies. I'll drive them to the devil, cried Tom. Exactly, said the man in black with a grim smile. Then he extended his hand, saying, done. Done, said Tom Tom Walker, and they shook hands and struck a bargain. Soon Tom Walker was seated behind his new desk and counting house in Boston. The place was richly furnished and had been paid for in antique gold coins to which traces of dark earth still clung. His business was thronged by the needy, who hoped to keep a roof over their heads and bread on their table, the foolhardy who dreamed of turning borrowed money into great fortunes, gamblers whose luck had run out, and merchants whose credit had dried up. In short, everyone driven to raise money by desperate means and desperate sacrifices hurried to Tom Walker. Tom acted like a friend, but he always demanded full return and more for the money he loaned. He squeezed his customers as dry as a sponge and sent them away destitute. In this way, he became very rich and a mighty man and built himself a huge house. As Tom grew old, however, he grew thoughtful. Having secured the good things of this world, he began to worry about the next. He regretted his deal with the devil and tried to think of how to escape from his bargain with the black woodsman. All of a sudden, he became a violent churchgoer. He prayed loudly as if he could take possession of heaven by the force of his lungs. He constantly censured his neighbors and seemed to think that every sin he noted in them was a credit to him. Soon, his zeal became as notorious as his riches. In spite of all this, Tom dreaded that the devil would have his due after all and carry him off. So Tom always kept a small Bible in his coat pocket. He also had a huge Bible on his counting house desk and was frequently found reading the Bible when people called upon his business. Then he would lay his spectacles in the book to mark his place when he drove some ruinous bargain with the poor souls in his shop. One hot summer afternoon as a black thundercloud was coming up, Tom sat in his counting house in his white cap and his silk robe. He was about to foreclose on a mortgage which would ruin an unlucky man. "'My family will be driven to the poorhouse,' the wretched man pleaded. "'I must take care of myself,' replied Tom. "'But you have made so much money out of me already,' the other cried. Tom lost his patience and his piety. "'The devil take me,' he said, "'if I have made a farthing.' Just then there were three loud knocks at the door. Tom opened it to see who was there. A man dressed in a black woodsman, woodsman's outfit was holding a black horse, which neighed and stamped with impatience. Tom, you're come for, said the fellow gruffly. Tom shrank back, but too late. He had left his little Bible in his coat pocket and his big Bible on his desk, under the mortgage he was about to foreclose. Never was a sinner taken more unawares. The black figure whisked him into the saddle, and the horse galloped away down the streets. Tom Walker's white cap bobbed up and down, his robe fluttered in the wind, and the steed struck fire out of the cobblestones at every bound. The dark woodsman disappeared in the blaze of of fire. Tom never returned to foreclose the mortgage. A man who lived on the border of the swamp reported that that at the height of the thunderstorm, he had heard a great clattering of hooves and a howling along the road. He ran to the window and caught sight of a figure on a horse that raced like mad across the fields and down into the black swamp towards the old fort. Shortly thereafter, a lightning bolt fell and seemed to set the whole forest ablaze. When neighbors searched Tom's offices, they found all his bonds and mortgages burned to cinders. His huge iron chest was filled with chips and shavings of wood instead of gold and silver. The next day, his house caught fire and burned to the ground. Such was the end of Tom Walker and his ill-gotten wealth. Boy, howdy. That was a good one, too. I'm going to take a quick break.
1: Real estate for super prestige, top value, investment grade, lifestyle defining, timeless class but effortlessly informal. Live your life like it's out of a catalog. In an environmentally precarious area of biodiversity, seismic turbulence, and scarce resources, nothing makes more sense than building a French chateau with a 25 acre lawn in the desert. Fabulous views. Look down on people. Live the American dream. Residing in a mansion waited on by immigrants who hate you. Windsor real estate. Real estate at the highest price imaginable. It's who you are. The kind of water you drink
2: says a lot about the type of person you are. Flow. It's time to take hydration seriously. Flow. Flow. Your local water is terrible. It's time to make hydration real. Flow. That's why we filtered it, put it in a fancy bottle, and are marketing it using famous actors. Flow. It's time to make hydration creative. Are you still drinking tap water? What's wrong with you? It's time to make hydration flow. Flow. Drink flow. Infused with oxygen and hydrogen. If you're active or at least want to appear to be, there's only one hydration solution.
3: Flow.
0: Flow. All right, this next one is called The Greedy Daughter and it comes to us from the land of Scongili and the Godfather, Italy. There once was a widow who had a daughter who was so greedy that the poor woman did not know what to do with her. She would gobble up everything in the house. When the widow came home from selling flowers in the market square, she would find nothing left to eat. Now it happened that they had a wolf as a neighbor. The wolf had a frying pan. While the girl's mother was too poor, poor to own one, whenever she wanted to fry something, the mother sent her daughter, Philomena, to borrow the wolf's frying pan. The wolf was very glad to loan the skillet to the widow, and he always sent a nice omelette in it so it would not be empty. The wolf intended this omelette for both mother and daughter, but Philomena was so greedy and so selfish she always ate the omelette on the way home. Her poor mother never had so much as a taste. When the good woman was finished with her frying, she would say to her daughter, Philomena, in the morning scour the pan clean and return it to our neighbor. Take with you a loaf of bread I baked today to thank him. Philomena was lazy as well as greedy. She refused to clean the greasy frying pan. She waited until her mother had gone to the market square. Then she ate the loaf of bread meant for the wolf. After this, she took some mud, baked it in the fireplace, put it in the frying pan. Our neighbor is only a wolf, after all, she said. He will not know baked dirt from good bread. The wolf was hurt when he saw the earthen loaf, but he was too good-hearted to say anything. After Philomena was gone, he said to himself, Well, well. Perhaps things are going so badly for the widow that she can offer me no more than a bit of baked mud and ash. Next time they borrow the frying pan, I'll make them an even finer omelette. Soon enough, the old woman asked Philomena to visit the wolf and beg for the loan of the skillet. This time, the wolf gave the girl the pan with an omelette so light and filled with fine herbs and cheese and ham that the greedy girl got only a short distance from the wolf's house before she gobbled up every bit of it. Not a speck was left for her mother that evening. When the widow had finished her frying, she said to Philomena, In the morning, scrub out the skillet and return it and take with you this pitcher of cream to thank our neighbor. As soon as her mother had left the next morning, greedy Philomena drank down every drop of the cream. Then she took the empty pitcher and greasy frying pan with her and walked to the wolf's house. She paused on her way to dig up a pitcher full of ditch water, muttering, Why waste sweet cream on a wolf? This will serve quite as well. Again, the wolf was offended by the sight of the greasy pan and the pitcher of ditch water, but he thanked the unkind girl anyway. To himself, he said, Now things must really be desperate in the poor woman's house that she can only send common ditch water by the way of thanks. Then he set to scouring the pan himself. It chanced soon after this that the wolf met the widow in the market square. How are things with you? he asked. Well enough, she said. How do you like my omelets? asked the wolf. "'I am sure you make delicious omelets," replied the confused woman, "'but I have never had the pleasure of tasting so much as a mouthful.' "'Never tasted them!' exclaimed the wolf. "'How many times have you sent Philomino to, Philomena to borrow my frying pan?' "'I am ashamed to say how many times,' said the flustered woman. "'A great many, certainly.' "'And every time I sent you an omelette in it,' the wolf said. "'Never a bit of it reached me,' the woman confessed. "'Then the greedy girl of yours must have eaten them on the way to your home every time.' Now the poor mother, anxious to keep the wolf from being angry at her daughter, made all manner of excuses of Philomena's greediness, but the wolf had grown even more suspicious, so he said, The omelets would have been better had the frying pan been properly cleaned before it was sent back to me. Surely you're mistaken, cried the widow. Philomena told me herself that she always cleaned it inside and out until it sparkled as bright as new silver. Then, worried because the wolf was growing angrier by the minute, the good woman said, I hope you enjoyed the little gifts of bread and cream I sent to you. Dirty ash and ditch water are all your wretched child brought to me, cried the wolf. Dear neighbor, surely you were joking, said the worried woman. Perhaps I burned the bread myself. If there was water in the cream, then the farmer I bought it from was a cheat. Oh, I know who has been the cheat, said the wolf. Now I must be on my way. Farewell. So saying, he hurried away. But he did not return to his own home. Instead, he raced to the woman's house. When Philomena saw the angry wolf approaching, she slammed shut the door. Then she called, "'Why have you come here?' "'I'm here to punish you for your unkind gifts of dirt and ditch water,' he roared. "'And your greedy way with the omelets entrusted to you and the bread and cream that were meant for me. Surely,' the wicked girl cried out, "'If anything is amiss, it was my mother's doing. She's in the market square. Go and gobble up that good-for-nothing if you must.' The wolf just growled and broke down the door. The frightened girl scrambled under the bed to hide herself. But it was as easy for the wolf to go under the bed as to get anywhere else. So under he went and dragged her out and gobbled her down on the spot. And that was the end of the greedy daughter. Wow. True to form, it's an Italian ghost story about food shaming a little kid. (laughs) Oh man. That is, uh, that is amusing. Anyway, on that charming note, guys, that's going to be the end of this episode. Thank you all very much for tuning in. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, please reach out to me on Instagram.com slash DukeLandis17. Please remember to cancel your Patreon account. If you have any questions about how to do that or why to do that, message me on Instagram.com slash DukeLandis17. If you are interested in hosting a podcast, you can do so by sending me an audition tape or a link to one on instagram.com/dukelandis17. That's instagram.com/duke D U K E landis L A N D I S 17 on Instagram. Go ahead and DM me. I may not see it, but I will get back to you eventually. I promise you that. It might take a few years, might take a few months, might take a few days depending on the day, but I'll get back to you eventually. Thank you all very much for tuning in. I genuinely appreciate you, and until next time, which will be soon, stay spooky.